Hi, everybody. Welcome to another UH Studio Architecture podcast. And in this episode, we are joined by Arturo Tedeschi, who may not need an introduction because if you know anything about computational design, you probably have already heard of him or read his books or looked at his fantastic galleries. So, but I'll just say a few words about him in case you are not familiar with Arturo. So he's a computational designer and a grasshopper expert, and he's the author of the AAD, Algorithms, Data Design and Parametric Architecture book, which was for a long time the Bible of Grasshopper. I personally have a copy and use it extensively when I was learning Grasshopper. And Arturo is involved a lot with architecture, but also with design. So he works with furniture, automotive, with installations, products and footwear. And he's also very adaptable, it appears, from what we see currently on your Instagram, Arturo, in regards to adapting new technologies beyond what you are an expert on. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dimitar, for the invitation. For It's a great pleasure to be with you and in your channel. Great. Yes. Thank you for joining us as well. I mean, you're one of the persons that I think led the whole computational design field initially. Well, it was not planned, actually, because uh, when I graduated, I started my career as a, I like to say, 1.0 architect, meaning that I was using, you know, standard tools like CAD or 3D modeling software, but I was not interested in uh, the emergence uh, of you know new tools, new paradigm. Uh, I like to say it was a happy accident. Uh, I was in London one day and I stumbled into an installation designed by the Architectural Association. It was a freeform sculpture that really changed everything because I said when I stumbled into the sculpture, I want to do this thing. I want to be this thing. And then I started studying everything by scratch, you know. There is a, a sentence, uh, an important quote by Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein, and he said, the limit of my language is the limit of my world. And so I really understood that my work as an architect was limited somehow because there was a limitation in my vocabulary in my language. So I wanted to expand it. And parametric design, generative design, really fascinated me at that time. But it was a completely different world, you know? It was very complex at the time to access information. YouTube was there, but was completely different. We didn't have so many resources out there. So I really started doing, uh, um, work as an independent researcher. I started, I was working in the day and I was researching at night. I like to say that I was like Bruce Wayne and Batman, you know, Bruce Wayne <laughs> in the morning and Batman at night. And I, and I started to create my superpowers by studying everything. And I collected, you know, a pile, a bunch of, you know, researches, papers, and I started connecting the dots. And so the first book that I published, Architettura Parametrica, that by the way is here, this one, 
no longer available. It's like a pamphlet, you know, it's very, very small. Uh, Still got a hundred pages in there, doesn't it? It's something like, you know, because at that time, uh, also the publishers, they did not believe so much in this kind of approach, in this kind of topics. Um, and so it was really hard to find someone that gave me the possibility to publish, you know, something like this. And the book was written and published in Italian. Again, Architettura Parametrica, Introduzione a Grasshopper, that means Introduction to Grasshopper, that was pretty new. The very first version of Grasshopper named uh, Explicit History was born in 2007, and the book is 2009. So um, it was a great challenge because, you, again, it was a completely different context at the time. And so everything started from that. It's crazy to think about that Grasshopper has only been around for 14 years. It feels like he has been forever, and I can't even imagine how to do half of the world's complex forms without having access to Grasshopper these days. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with you. And uh, when I started, it was a kind of serendipity, you know, having a new platform where you could combine uh, 3D modeling, but also research when, for example, a plugin like Kangaroo was released, uh, I really felt uh, this, um, you know, I had this feeling of having a research platform where I could combine uh, points, curves, but also simulating you know forces uh, attraction and everything to me was a a driver to explore new shapes and or a new new methodologies to achieve uh, amazing design because you know I, I always um approached tools from a from a, a designer standpoint mm -hmm. so that's great to hear how you got involved with it. I imagine it was probably one of the emerging technologies pavilions at the AA that you saw back in the day. Yeah, designed by Danesha Sibingo. She was a young student supported by the AA school. I think there was also Arup involved. Uh, the project was Drift, the, the project's name was Driftwood Pavilion. It was made by plywood. But you know, something that really blew my mind at the time was feeling that you could achieve something using a kind of DNA. Because as I told you, at that time I was working as a traditional architect with traditional tools. And everything was about connecting together, you know, plans or columns, but in general, flat surfaces together. And having this idea of uh, shaping uh, design or architecture using some uh, DNA, some energy that put everything together was really incredible for me. And that's why I really decided to change, to switch my career completely. Today, we talk about computational design. But back to 20, mm, 2009, it was not a profession. You know, It was not even a word or a definition. At the beginning, using Grasshopper or using parametric tools was 
as I told you, just um, as a superpower, something more to explore um, shapes, complexity, to solve complexity. But I didn't think that you could create a career on top of this new paradigm. But you have created a career for yourself on top of this new paradigm, right? So how did that come about? I guess so you you be, you were an architect 1.0 and then I suppose Arturo 2.0 came out, Batman with his <laughs> grasshopper skills and superpower, you, yeah, yeah. And you <laughs> did you start collaborating with people or how did you sort of popularize these new skills and more importantly because people weren't aware of them at that point and the capabilities that they can give to designers. I suppose you also had to popularize that, right? To make potential designers and architects aware of what's possible with these tools, right? Well, I guess uh, 15 years later, I can understand the puzzle. It is a puzzle of <laughs> different, but yeah, only now I can understand. Uh, it is um, There are so many pieces that I was lucky that, 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 that's the real answer. I was lucky to put pieces in the right order. Uh, first of all, I had to support myself financially, you know, because I, as I told you, I switched from being an architect and I worked in the world of architecture for five years, designing, you know, interiors, architecture, collaborating with different offices at the beginning. And then uh in order to do that to support you know financially my activity i started doing uh, teaching mm -hmm. after the first book teaching was an important part of my uh, evolution you know uh, also as a human being because having this relation i was not used to teach things to people because i'm not a, a formal researcher so it was a, a great experience as a human being to have a connection with young professionals, with young students. And uh, I really get something back that was really important. First of all, a lot of questions. And those questions were the basis, for example, for my second book, AAD, Algorithms Aided Design, that was... Um, that really changed my life. First of all, because I spent two years in writing that book every day for eight hours. It was really a, a great commitment. So I was teaching parametric design, grasshopper, um, mainly in Italy at the time. And uh, then I published the second book. The second book was uh, really an international success mainly because it's the only, and it, it was and it still is the only book on parametric design with um, kind of, I don't know to say, I always think that a book should be like a path from zero to hero. You open the first page and you don't know anything about the topic. And then you close the last page and then you learn something using a kind of, you know, there is a presence, the presence of the author that guides you towards this kind of path. Mm. And then the book was really, yeah, again, successful and uh, um, so many offices and, and, and brands, they started, you know, having the book in the, in, in, on the shelf. 
And so uh, people, they started calling me for that. And my consulting activity uh, was born in that way. So basically the book was a, a hook, a link, a bridge between uh, uh, brands, companies, architecture offices, and um, the, the story started like that, basically. It sounds like a massive investment, eight hours every day for yeah, two years. Yeah, for two so... years, maybe also two years enough. Yeah, it was uh, really, uh, um, you know, it's a, it's a great commitment when you, when you are working on something and you don't know how it will uh, be after the publishing, you know? It's a mm -hmm. kind of blind work because you are not getting any resource, also financial resource, meanwhile you are writing. So it's a really a, a huge commitment in terms of uh, personal resources, energy, um, psychology. You need to have a kind of mental attitude, which is really something that I couldn't, I cannot do in this moment, for example. But it, it's a huge commitment, definitely. And you clearly had the vision that what you're doing is important enough that people would probably pay attention to it so i imagine it was that vision that was you know the driver and clearly the dividends really paid off but the main driver i know that maybe it sounds kind of pretentious but it was a philanthropic attitude i really wanted to share the possibilities that a tool like grasshopper give to people that that was really important because it changed my life somehow uh, i really consider grasshopper like an extension of my hands now everything that i'm modeling i'm creating it's based on that platform so i felt this revolutionary approach and i really wanted to share with people but through a precise lens and this lens is the the lens of a designer, someone that uh, is not a programmer, is not a, a coder, not something completely involved in the technical part, you know, in the mechanism, but some someone that wanted to use, to leverage the potential of parametric design to influence the production, the ideation of things. That was, that was really important. And Throughout the process, it appears that you really are first designer and then you do whatever it takes to help your designs. So whether that is Grasshopper or Midjourney now or ChatGPT and so on, because some people, some, some former colleagues of mine, and I'm sure of everybody's, you know, they started young as architects. They discovered that they are, they quite like coding, right? And they went down the other path, which is an accepted path now, computational design. And they committed to it full time to work as either developers or in a research cluster at like Fosters or Zaha and yeah. so on. But you, so do you see, I, I suppose you see yourself a lot more as a designer than a technologist in that sense. A hundred percent. It depends on my background, my passion. I have a... Uh, there is not a coincidence between uh, um, my passion and my daily work. I mean, my work is influenced by movies, music, art. They are the main driver. I 
don't know to say, I fuel my activity with other arts. They are my yeah. main reference. But I need superpower to translate all this imagery of forms or inspiration. And so if I want to turn them into something real, I need tools, new paradigms. I need to explore the current technology. And, uh, but they are separate moments. You know, I always divide the moment of ideation from the process itself. I never, or I try not to overlap them. So for example, I like when a piece of design is influenced by something which is outside the technology. There is an installation that I designed for Adidas two years ago for the Adidas Berlin store. It's a sculpture and an installation that talk about, talks about uh, the, um, the kind of uh, recycling loop starting from wasted materials into particles, into filaments, which is a, a um, recycled loop. And mm -hmm. this installation is 3D printed. It uses somehow the state of the art of technology in terms of tools, because we use grasshopper and other voxelization tools. And then the state of the art of 3D printing, because it's a major object. We are talking about 17 meters of yeah. 3D printed 3D sculpture, but the reference, the influences, they are completely outside, you know, the technology is not a lattice. It's a kind of sculpture that also a sculptor from Renaissance could do, you know, by, by, you know, carving the materials. So we use the technology, but the ideation moment was completely uh, separated by the process. This is something that is really, um, I, I, I believe it's really clear in my, in my work. Can you expand a little bit on that? So by the ideation, you mean the initial concepts and just being perhaps as free as possible? Yeah, I, I, I believe that when you are in love with the technology and with the process, and I am somehow, but if you are totally uh, if you embrace completely the, the technology paradigm, you have this tendency to overlap these two moments that, from my perspective, they should be separated. So, for example, I was telling, you know, I was talking about 3D printing. You, if you just go on Google and you type 3D printed sculpture or installation, you will see a lot of lattices or intricate uh, um, geometries. Why? Because, you know, if you are working with 3D printing, it's very cool to explore these kind of shapes and it makes sense somehow. But in general, you see a lack of uh, creative power on that because, you know, it's just the process that leads to a final geometry. So when I create something when I speak with clients, uh, I always have a moment where the, ins the, the, the creative energy, the concept stage, the mood boarding, it's completely separated by the technology I'm going to use. The tool uh, or the fabrication uh, methodology I'm going to use is something completely separated. So I have a moment where, again, art, movies, cinema, um, music, uh, art, uh, 
uh, everything guides me in a kind of sometimes also of um, um, irrational way. And that's the pure energy. You were mentioning my recent work, for example, also with AI. I believe that AI is um, putting designers in this new dimension where ideation is completely separated by the process itself. So it's very easy nowadays to create amazing concepts using, for example, text-to-image um, platforms. And so you are forced to think about what you want to achieve. And later on, you start, you know, the, 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 your 3D modeling tool or your, you know, grasshopper definition. And then you start, you know, converting a concept into something real. But the moments are really separated. To me, this is very important, probably because, you know, I have a background as an architect. I studied in a... Um, in a completely different scenario where the ideation was a moment uh, uh, fueled by, as I told you, references completely disconnected with the process itself. Yes. Okay. So in other words, you see the ideation process as a free process where it doesn't matter. Like you're not concerned about how you can achieve that. What your concern is to have the right references for the design aspect of the project. And only after that, do you start to think, okay, I can do this in this in this way with this tool or with that tool and so on and so forth. But as opposed to starting out like what you were mentioning with lattices in the sense that, okay, I know what this tool is capable of producing. Therefore, I will show a couple of those examples to the clients and see how we can maybe improve on that, but it might not be completely relevant to the current design exercise that you're in the process of doing. Is that more or less right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, you know, I like to mention Cedric Price that was saying technology is the answer, but what was the question? So yes. this is something that I always, uh, this is written on the walls of my office. Uh, technology is always the answer or, you know, always 98% of uh, a situation is the right answer. But it's important to uh, come back to the original question. So if you mainly work as a consultant, as an insert for companies, you start with a brief you have a responsibility sometimes in, in, for example, in product design. You need to create uh, a project or a product uh, that works in a specific market. So there is a lot of research and work that should be carefully guided. And, and you have to be free, free from the, sometimes from the, the, the framework that are an advanced tools, advanced tools can give you. And so you mentioned the, the, the word uh, freedom somehow. You should be free from the, um, the, the, the framework of um, also of geometric uh, limitations. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that you mentioned Cedric Price's quote because uh, as a design research lab grad from the AA, Theos Paropoulos, you know, he beat that in yeah. our heads and purposefully so because... When we were studying, 
we were all fascinated by all these new technologies that we were being exposed to. And we were just were so fascinated by it that we forgot to ask the critical architectural discourse questions about what is it that we're designing for. And I believe at that stage it was okay, right? Because we were just dipping our toes and you do need this sort of pre R&D experimentation phase. You're not specifically bound to specific architectural questions, but having those capabilities later could reintroduce that architectural or design agenda. So you use those tools as a means to answer whatever questions you or your client or your team might be asking. But you know, there is also um, responsibility from uh, people that do education at any level to um, clearly transmit to students this um, um, this concept and this, uh, if you like, this workflow. It's very important to understand that tools are a part of the recipe and methodologies are a part of the recipe. It's also always important to understand that everything is a kind of chain with so many parts that should be combined together. Otherwise, the risk is to generate every time something that is completely similar to previous works and there is no evolution if you don't have a powerful injection of uh, creative energy at the beginning of every design process. Yeah, and uh, that's where I see tools like Midjourney, for example, as a double-edged sword. On one hand, they give us all these wonderful opportunities. But on the other hand, if you don't have you know, a question to ask it, and you just say a pretty building sitting on a lake, let's twist it, right? It will produce wonderful, wonderful results. Then the question is, what does that mean? And is that a design exercise? Or does, the, does it help the designer become an artist? Or perhaps we're still early on in the sort of research phase collectively well i guess there is a huge fascination for these tools mainly because they have a very low barrier to entry everyone can use that differently from a tool like grasshopper or like maya or like blender everyone can easily um, use midjourney or dali also on a smartphone on a tablet computer yeah and then you get a kind of uh, instant gratification. This is very important. You can easily be gratified by the result. But this is just the early stage. I believe that um, uh, designers, they will start using different tools. For example, I'm now exploring all the possibility of stable diffusion. This is still a text-to-image generator, mainly. But with parameters, you can really fine-tune the result. It's a combination of text prompts, but also images. You can combine settings with really few subtle nuances in terms of language. And so the result, it's guided. It's not, again, a kind of happy accident or a serendipity. 
And Midjourney just, you know, uh, opened the, the Pandora box somehow. But I'm, I deeply believe that uh, we are going to, the designers are going to use these new uh, possibilities in a, in a wise way. I, it's the future in a way, isn't it? I mean, you have to, otherwise you'll be left behind. You know, everybody, uh, well, not everybody, but the media can easily over-exaggerate the dangers of yeah. AI, you know, in terms of taking away jobs and so on and so forth. But to me, it's similar to what happened with CAT and with BIM in architecture, right? We thought, okay, our work is going to get easier because we have these wonderful tools that can that is faster to produce the results. But then the clients also became smarter and they asked us, you know, to do five, 10, 15 variations instead of two, because they also knew that we had the capabilities. Now, what I'm foreseeing is with mid-journey or with AI in general, in regards to architecture, it will be a similar path, right? It's another evolution, which hopefully gets a better alignment between the architects and the clients to produce better results, but the clients are also going to get smarter. So it's not just the the architect it's not just the architects and the designers yeah i agree there is uh, something to be noted anyway uh, i believe that uh, the this ai revolution uh, it's a revolution not an evolution if you think about grasshopper or blender parametric tools in general they were based uh, upon the bezier formulation basically you know also in in advanced parametric tools you were still working with points and curves you know so it was really an evolution from uh, bezier formulation nerbs and then cad software beam 3d modeling uh, let's say grasshopper blender and etc they were they are tracing a precise line AI works on a completely different uh, formulation and paradigm, which is something really closer to the way our brain formulates things, which is finding latent relationship between data. You know, when we create something and we come back to the ideation phase, when we come back in that specific area, we connect dots in, so in, in a kind of irrational way, you know? And these new tools, they do the same thing because we have incredibly vast database of information. And when we type something, these tools, they start connecting dots and they came up with an image or a, uh, or a sketch in a few months, also a 3D. And so it's not just an evolution, it's a completely different way. And there is a, Another silent revolution that few people are noticing, that they are changing the human computer interface and interaction because we are not using anymore our hands. If you are in Rhino, if you are in Grasshopper or Blender or a simple cat, you are still using your mouse, meaning that you are still a monkey. You know, you are a monkey with a, an advanced tool, but you're using your finger, you're using your hand. You are still a monkey. 
so the, the silent revolution of mid-journey or DALI is that we are, start, we, we are starting using the language. This is the real revolution. In a few months or a few years, it will be a direct connection with brain. You know, recent news from, from Elon Musk is that they are going to test uh, this kind of brain sensor, a device that can be connected ideally with, uh, you know, gen to the image generation platforms, for example. This is something possible, you know. So this is the silent revolution we are leading, a new way to communicate with the computer. The very successful mid-journey, uh, let's say a part of the success of mid-journey is of course in, this, in its quality and the quality of the final images, but also the fact that it works inside Discord. Discord is a messaging tool, but we can say it's a social network. And we have, our, nowadays, we have this kind of social posture. We live in social networks. You know, we create something, we share it online. And so Midjourney works inside the social network, and it works using the natural language. That's the real revolution. That's why everyone wants to explore, you know, ideas or just, you know, to generate images out there. That's, that's why, to me, it's just the first step of a, of a new path you know in the world of uh, technology and that will support of course the design and architecture world interesting that you see it that way i say slightly different uh, for me it's very much an evolutive tool than a revolutionary tool mm -hmm. in the sense that it still promotes the same relationships between designers the design the client and also the construction capabilities, because uh, in order for it to be completely evolutionary, we would also have to think about how AI takes a hold of the construction process, right? Because we're a little bit bound by that at the moment, in the sense that if we design something and we want that thing to get built, we have to look at, either, depending on the scale, on either traditional methods, panelization, you know, 3D printing, but still of assembly processes. And those are, how shall we say, finite and, finite and kind of bound by the current rules that we have. But it's very interesting what you propose or what you say, because I can almost foresee that in the future in a way where, okay, we have now a construction process that's also bound by A. So it's not you know, experienced engineers that are coming up with like the joints and measuring this precise weights and so on of the construction pieces that we have. But it's also AI that's doing that. And AI is, you know, you, you, you plug in the design and the, the idea, and then AI comes up with the design and maybe the same AI or different one then comes up with the way that that could be built, you know, completely you know, in a different way. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, it would be interesting, I keep saying that word, but it is. Uh, it will be quite useful to know, though, how that would clasp on with government regulations and so on, right? Because buildings and habitable structures, they have to have some standards in mind. And it, it, it might be the perfect example, actually, is the Zaha staircase at the Venice Biennale two years ago, right? 
really beautiful structure. It was using some very innovative methods that were also rooted in ancient technologies of just plugging pieces together. But the Venetian government, you know, decided that they yeah. don't know how well it is. And they decided that we cannot allow people to climb that because we don't know if they're going to fall or not. But I remember that uh, I was working on a, let's say, kind of NDA super secret project years ago in, in Mozambico. It was a, a project for a resort. And we decided to go uh, to use 3D printing and creating uh, 3D printed shelters using the local sand. And everything was ready. We had the design, we had also the, um, all the engineering calculation, you know, everything was fine and working. The problem was the government because it was a completely new technology, completely new way to uh, build a structure. And so the project was stopped for that. So sometimes, you know, the technology is, uh, uh, is more advanced than regulations, of course. But this is a, you know, it's a story that repeats itself in, our, in, in the history of, uh, of the human evolution and, and architecture specifically. But there is something important to, to, to say that in general, um, when, you know, the work of designers and architects is translating ideas into real things. So you can simplify the old process in this simple bridge. And we have traditional um, processes that, for example, in construction nowadays, and every time you add something new, like parametric design 15 years ago, and now AI, you will always feel this kind of, uh, um, I don't know to say friction, between different moments. When we started working with parametric design, you know, the, the, the main, the usual answer was, it's not possible to build this. And then for example, 3D printed was a great uh, partner at the time for, you know, realizing concepts or also pieces of real architecture. And I'm sure that AI will also help us in imagining new way to build things. It's, it will be also a tool that will guide us in uh, imagining new uh, ways to, to, to build architecture. That's also interesting. Um, and there will be probably a, a paradigm shift. And again, we still think that um, nowadays, if we generate a, a cool project with a, an AI tool, we open Rhino maybe, and we try to replicate that thing using curves and points and surfaces and et cetera. But in a few months, we will probably get 3D models directly from a text prompt. And so also the NURBS formulation, all the Bezier world uh, will be probably overcome, you know, because we will have new ways to represent geometrically our reality. I'm sure that, for example, voxel-based geometries will be the future. Voxelization, the idea of working with three-dimensional pixels combined together, that will be probably one of the most interesting paradigms of the next future. We won't probably use any more, you know, complex curves and surfacing and because we will automatically get 
3D models from uh, AI platforms. And so also that part will be completely changed. Yeah, it would be for for the 3D modeling part, it, we have to see, it would take a couple of years, I think, you know, even if it comes up in a few months. Yeah. Because we all, always iterate, right? And it's the process of iteration that's really important. And and as you said, stable diffusion is something I also experiment with. And I've also started making some videos on it because of the easy power that it does provide working from a sketch and transferring that sketch into a vision. And yeah. it's, it has to be that way, doesn't it? Because we do have to have a starting point, not just a Pandora's box of picking different ideas. And I suppose it's the same with construction and evolving those designs iteratively, right? So you start with a vision, you go through 50, 60 iterations, who knows, thousand soon, and then you pick, you know, the ones that satisfy the design criteria, and then you move on to the next phase. And then with the next phase, it's okay, how do we rationalize that? You know, that's a typical process now. It's like, okay, we have 3D printers, fine. What's the bed volume of the 3D printer? And how can we print in the most optimal way and so on? So it would be uh, an evolution if that process, see, it's difficult to propose that for it to be created from AI because it's also taking away from the designer though, doesn't it? Because yeah. that that's very important for the design process of knowing how things come together. Yes, definitely. As I was saying, it's a chain where every step is connected with the previous one and with the next one. So if you are an architect, uh, you need to have a systemic vision. So it's important to have all the places under control, but this is really trivial. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> and uh, do you do any pure scripting like Python or C Sharp or do you see it almost as irrelevant now for designers with tools like ChatGPT? Well, I used Python basically uh, for speed up some operation in, within Grasshopper scripts. You know, it's really hard to create uh, uh, iterations, for example. Uh, if you work with Grasshopper, that is a visual, um, a visual scripting, has a visual scripting logic, it's very difficult to repeat a process n times, for example. So I basically use Python to speed up some, uh, some, some process. Um, and I'm also, for example, exploring the, the possibility, possibilities of using, uh, and let's come back to AI, ChatGPT to produce uh, Grasshopper code, or to be precise, Python codes for Grasshopper. And that's um, there are still so many limitations, so many bugs, but it's interesting the also the debugging capabilities, for example, of ChatGPT, and and I'm like enjoying this idea of uh, speeding up two times, you know, twice the process. So uh, maybe doing an iter an iteration within Grasshopper, but getting the uh, the script from an AI tool. I, you you inspired me when I saw your posts to try <laughs> to do some so, some geometry based scripts from ChatGPT and I did try it with Grasshopper and with Blender 
and uh, also I did it for I'm, I'm working on a course at the moment and okay with courses there's subtitles and anyways I needed some scripts for splitting the, the videos and so on so I asked chat GPT but I spent maybe eight hours directing chat GPT to get to the right sort of script still had some issues do you yeah. have you had some challenges like that too in your uh, yeah, 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 of, of course. Yeah, of course. But you can learn a way to formulate the, the right question in order to get the right code. There are still so many problems. Sometimes, I mean, you get some line that doesn't work. It's important to know some Python if you want to properly uh, yeah. combine, you know, the result from a, from a chatbot uh, and a tool like Grasshopper. So it's not, again, a blind or simple process. You need to have some simple Python skill to, to, to leverage the, this kind of possibility. But yeah, uh, in general, coding is a way to speed up some process to me. I also think that uh, um, sometimes there is also some issue connected. If you are an architect and you start thinking about uh, um, um, if you are in a coding problem solving, uh, you are probably getting some distance from the real problems that are, you know, the space concept, materials, uh, how to combine things together. It's a, uh, we, uh, as a designer, I prefer to solve problems connected with architecture and design rather than coding, you know? And visual scripting to me was revolutionary for this precise reason that you are more focused on the result rather than you know being uh, sometimes lost into lines and lines of codes because this is not our profession again my standpoint is always uh the one of a designer that uses technology to achieve some result and so lines and lines of codes to me can be a way to lose yourself in 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 a, in a sometimes in a very intricate maze um it can be a way to create a distance from the designer and the and and the, and the real problem i completely appreciate what you're saying because i have been there and i have been lost in code right trying to sort it all out and script it as automatically as possible and i do think though it is important when starting out to to allow yourself the freedom a little bit to explore the code a little bit deeper. So when the real design exercise comes, you're a bit more aware of how to handle the problem more accurately. And back to ChatGPT, for architecture, for general scripting, it's definitely revolutionary because it does allow that people like like you're saying, I don't think architects should be able, should be coders, right? But knowing some, having some Python expertise would go a long way now, especially with knowing that you need something very custom and you're not sure how to do it. Do you have to hire a guy or a consultancy to help you with that? Or you just plug in into ChatGPT, maybe spend a day or two trying to experiment with what it's capable of giving you, and then you move on with your design. So in that sense, there's definitely 
a lot of opportunities in I mean exactly the kinds of work that you were showing. Yeah, yeah, and there is also a kind of metaphor in that. If you think that 15 years ago, uh, advanced computational tools and methodologies they only belong to, you know, the so-called avant-garde offices. You mentioned, you know, the clusters in at Norman Foster or at Zaha Hadid at the time, and only few. Uh, organizations were able to explore and to use these methodologies uh, within their standard pipeline. Nowadays, everyone somehow, also small offices, they are leveraging the possibilities of uh, parametric design uh, or advanced modeling. And it means that everyone should create uh, a specific workflow leveraging different, you know, methods. And Python is one of them. Coding is one of them. It, it fits your process. It's perfect. If you don't waste your time and if you don't struggle in understanding that, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fine. But again, I believe that a part of, uh, if you consider the last five, seven, eight years, we can clearly see that the let, let's call it the struggle or anyway the time spent in uh, enjoying the tools or understanding the tools created this overlapping between again ideation and process and so, sometimes you, you know the effect is millions of buildings that are always the same or millions of products that are always the same with the same patterns, the same parametric aesthetic and language, uh, you know, towers with torsions everywhere. And that's the risk that you fall, because if you struggle for something, at the end, you get this kind of uh, um, Stockholm syndrome that you fall in love at the end uh, for the, 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 the tool you struggle for. And so that's the main problem connected with uh, uh, sometimes with advanced tools. They create this kind of distance between the ideation and the and the effect. I, I met at a conference once this uh, Italian fellow whom you may know as well from from uh, Sicily, from Palermo, who's doing a PhD on exactly that, which is to say the final result could be strongly associated yeah. with the tool that was used. You know, like grasshopper projects look like grasshopper projects. Maya projects look like Maya projects. No, it's really interesting when you see a project, both either a product or an architecture, and you don't understand which kind of tool was used. I, I can clearly see this effect in the work, for example, of Herzog and Demeron. You don't really understand which kind of method was used, or Thomas Heatherwick, as an example. I really like their approach because you can clearly see um, originality, the idea of pushing boundaries in the correct way, and a massive use of advanced technologies. But they are really articulated in a, in a really sophisticated way. And I really like the, that kind of approach. Yeah, so... The Heatherwick is a great office, and I'm glad you mentioned that because Code Drops Yard, uh, for those that may not be familiar, this is a project in London from basically two old train warehouses uh, where the roof was completely merged. And the process 
to create that involved a ton of paper models for them to find the right expression to get to it. They were not concerned with what's possible to build or what is not impossible to build. They were really concerned about having the right idea, design idea that works yeah. with all the design parameters that they set up. And then they continued with that process and realized ways through Grasshopper to build it. Yeah, yeah, 100% agree with you. And I, I like the, the project specifically. And uh, yeah, there is out there uh, a collection of uh, projects that uh, somehow they gave uh, they they give us a precise direction of what architecture and should should be. Um, and uh, I, I, again, the fascination for tools and and complex processes it's a it's a I believe it's a transitory stage and uh, with uh, the new AI tools will be probably we we are going we we are going toward a, a, a new stage of creation where creativity will be will have a, a new impact in a completely unexpected way I believe. So about design going back you have dealt with architecture with automotive with fashion and and installations a lot and do you see a lot of overlaps in the processes of approaching for one design exercise to another and do you have a preferred sort of de design direction that you would rather work more in or do you see them all as sort of like these equals which require great design input well, I like to say that I'm um, I have a uh, material technology wanderlust, so I never adopted one manifesto or one technology or one material. Every project is in uh, every uh, brand or, or or company I worked for was an opportunity to explore something new. And in general, my activity is um, about you know. Uh, consulting and also doing uh, some design project. I try to do a design project uh, like installations, as you mentioned, every every year, uh, in order to explore something which is disconnected from any kind of uh, uh, program. You know, I want to be free to explore new technologies and put them all together. For example, one year ago, I was working, I worked for a an installation where I connected um, 3D printing with blockchain technology, NFT, something that was almost impossible to explore for um, a commission project. So in general, I like to use, I, I take every project as an opportunity to explore new materials uh, new technologies sometimes also design tools and uh, you you can clearly see from my portfolio where you it's really difficult to find two projects that that that, that are similar and sometimes uh, it's also a problem because you don't create a language that can be risky if you are a designer that work a designer that works in the market um, so the fil rouge, the, the connection mainly is in the, 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 the way 
tools and methodologies are, are, are used, for example. Something that you can clearly see is, uh, again, uh, is, uh, are the references that, comes, that come outside the discipline. This is something that really want to explore anytime I create something new. So back to the Adidas Pavilion that we started talking about early on, the 3D printed recycled plastic. So yeah, as you did say 3D printed, or did I make that up, by the way? 3D printed, yeah, yeah, yeah. 3D printed, okay. So what was yes. the, the, the process like of constructing it? Was it, I imagine you said 17 meters, so I imagine it must have been 3D printed yeah. in parts. In parts, yeah, you're elements. right. Yeah, we had this um, this freedom to explore the geometry asset, the, the, the geometric aspect at the beginning, and we really use 3D printing as the only you know possible way to achieve that kind of complexity. And the process was 80% ideation and 20% 80% ideation. 10% uh, translating the idea into a printable model and 10% printing. Again, this proportion is a, it's a way to describe a recipe where we really try to create something new. And if you, uh, the, the project was created in 2020, it has to me the energy of digital art, the energy also of uh, the aesthetic direction that tools like Midjourney are creating. It looks like a project created with Midjourney two years before Midjourney. So that's very important to me. It's a, it's really sophisticated the way the um, the concept was completely kept in the translation to a physical product. Um, yeah, we used, of course, uh, uh, everything was created into several parts. Uh, something which is a mandatory approach in my work, I don't like to show the connections. I really, uh, my ambition is to create always the so-called seamless design. I don't like to show the tension in objects. You have tension, you have forces, you are bending stress inside things, but I like to hide it. I like to um, create a kind of equilibrium in the final result. So the installation is a kind of flow that goes between you know columns and beams for 17 meters again. But the tension was solved. I always like to say that with computational tools, you need to solve complexity, not to rather than you know represent complexity. So all the tension of materiality, all the tension about you know gravity, it's solved internally by hiding all these kind of things. And the final object is an installation in, that, that looks like a renaissance. Uh, it has some renaissance attitude, something that is really uh, precise, that stays in equilibrium. It's also suspended. Um, and I always try to solve the problems like hiding the, the mechanism, you know, the, the mechanical part. Yeah. So very anti Sancho Pompidou, the opposite approach of that. The opposite approach. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's the opposite direction, you know, because um, again, I, I guess it's a periodic uh, think 
you know, there are periods of the history of architecture and design where the um, showing out the mechanism coincides with the with the language itself. The the, the high tech the high tech architecture was all about you know showing off the muscles somehow. So removing the limitation, there was also a philosophical approach. You know, we were coming, if you think about the Pompidou that was completed in the 70s, more or less. Uh, 68 was two years before. And there also there was also a philosophical approach that was about, you know, communicating freedom, lightness, transparency. It was the new world against the old world. And that was a really important building, also because it was a museum in the center in the center of Paris. And then, in this kind of uh, complex uh, um, parabola or, or, or function, there are moments where we don't want to show off the technology anymore, and so the the message is more important than the substance. Sometimes, I guess that we are living a moment where communicating is the most important thing. And we want to communicate with language. Uh, I mean, everything is about storytelling nowadays. And also projects yeah. are a way to express things. More than showing off how we make it, it's important that every, you know, there are so many buildings that, that they, they, are, they, are, they, they are created using a storytelling that is turned into, you know, metal parts and, and concrete and they communicate. Frank Gehry is a master on that, for example. If you think about the Frank, the, the, the building in Prague, the dancing house, it's pure storytelling created with advanced uh, design tools like Katia or advanced manufacturing process and materials, you know, steel and glass. There is a complex panelization, but that is not a building that talks about technology. It's a message, you know, there are two dancers um you know it, it it's a part of the evolution of uh, of human being basically and we alternate moments of communication storytelling and moments when we want to you know express the new technologies yeah the storytelling of uh, the, the storytelling aspect of architecture is something that you know you don't get taught about in school and sometimes you can get even lost in the office because people think architecture is about building Right, but every client or every organization wants to have a story behind the design process, the inspiration, and the drivers to help with their own project. You know, because clients then need to reach to other potential investors and so on to to build out buildings. So totally appreciate that, and it is a sh ever shifting storytelling process, right? About what are the current important aspects that need to be represented best in architecture and design and it also creates us uh, it's a signature i mean if everyone uh, using another quote uh, from bruce mao which is uh, the problem with software is that everyone has it so how yeah. can we differentiate how our design can be different from uh, the design of other people, other designers, other colleagues. You know, storytelling is one of them because everyone has a story, everyone has a story to tell and through the message you can differentiate the designer. 
and it's very important and as you said it's not something that is taught at universities it's not uh, it's not part sometimes of the culture of a an architecture office or a brand or an organization and we have to learn a lot from fashion for example because fashion is all about storytelling and uh, the bridges between architecture design and and fashion are they are probably they will probably fuel this new uh, i don't know better not to say this new flow of uh, the architecture profession yeah. so storytelling is definitely uh, one of the keywords of uh, the next years now that you mentioned we're talking about storytelling, I worked in the office of David Ajay for a while and he started his work initially for designing houses for his fashion friends in London. So he does have this very strong relationship with the arts community, with the fashion community, and his buildings are not computationally complex in any sense of the word, uh, but they, the office does exploit the tools when there is a need. So... Uh, those all of his buildings start with a, a storytelling aspect you know which is okay what do i want this building to be to represent who it's who it is for and so on so in a sense a little bit like heatherwick because i think heatherwick is also very much about the story of the place and really making it significant if it needs to be or toning it down if that is desired as well so, yeah, I, I suppose all the great architects, I mean, even Chipperfield in a way, right? And his muted yeah. response in a way also tells a story, which is a very different story, let's say, than most of the other very famous architects at the moment. But, you know, it happens also in, in, in product design. If you think about uh, a simple object, which is a, a lamp, one of the most successful uh, lamp project is a, I don't know if you ever see it is a is a monkey holding a bulb is one of the most hmm. uh, it's produced by um, an Italian brand and is one of the most successful product out there in terms of lamp you know and and I was wondering why you know because there is a message of uh, I don't know what to say you, you you know you come back home after a uh, hard day and you turn off the light, you turn on the light and you see this monkey which is kind of laughing you know it's pure message it's probably maximalism there is a sculpting and, and design in the same thing but there is a message i mean we are still we are human being at the end of the day so it's very important that a kind of frequency of uh, message from the designer to the final user it's still alive in the project this is very important and sometimes we forget to do that and uh, referencing back to what you were saying about the different waves in the architecture profession you know whether yeah. it's to expose it or not yeah so storytelling i think is a very important one as well which gets redefined all the time sometimes it's we see it as important, and I think that's where we are at the moment. There's this kind of renaissance, in a way, of the importance of storytelling. Before, it was all about information, 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 right? And yeah. it was coming from, from branding as well, from, from fashion. I don't know about fashion too much. But now, or automotive as well, 
and automotive is yeah. very much about trying to design something that associates it with their target audience, isn't it? Whether it's like very muscular and strong, whether it's more feminine or there's, yeah, all kinds of different ways to think about that and tie that back into the design. Yeah, automotive is a really is really interesting also because uh, it is leaving uh, uh, an important transformation, which is you know the transition to the uh, you know electric uh, engine, and also we are going towards the self-driving you know automotive world, which is super fascinating. And uh, I was talking with uh, with a guy in the world of automotive, and he was saying to me that you know, Arturo, why cars will be more and more fun in the future? You know, they, they, cars they have a face, you know. Yes. If do. you see a front of a car, and it is usually really carefully designed. If you are creating a, a self-driving car, and it looks like uh, like a bad guy, you will be scared of a you know of a self driving thing that looks scary so probably the future car the future self driving cars they will look like a funny and you know calm animal or 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 or, or, or persona something that looks really uh, i don't know to say that is not scary at all and so this is interesting how a technology can guide the design of a front part of an object. Because again, we are still human beings, we have emotion and an object can, you know, trigger an emotion in your brain. So if you think about the Lamborghini cars that look like, you know, a viper or like a snake with snake eyes, very aggressive. And as you said, it communicates a kind of emotion, you know, it triggers a kind of emotion and communicates with a particular area of your brain. So every object it's, uh, with uh, its design feature is expressing something like equilibrium, aggressivity, or um, sexuality somehow, or with the, for example, the object that is in my back, which is an installation that I made in Rome years ago, uh, that was created using, for example, the uh, golden ratio as a main, uh, you know, geometric DNA. It communicates an idea of equilibrium or vibration. So we speak with our projects and with our shapes. If we don't do that, it means that we are just using the, the tools uh, in a blind way. Yeah, and golden ratio is amazing reference to bring into this conversation because with modern tools and with curves especially, and it has to do a little bit also with the way that Rhino's designed, right? Because without a software, pure arcs, they use pure arcs. But in Rhino, the minute you draw a circle, it becomes a curve. No, it doesn't stay as a circle unless you you know you know what you're doing a little bit better. So yeah, there is yeah, yeah. Th there's this almost a divide between old designers, which could be also very good designers, but they understand and respect the purity of of arcs and curves and tangents and so on. And then maybe new designers which are not so familiar with the old way of designing also a little bit because of the tools and how they're evolving. So aspects like golden ratio, like fillets, you know, with sub D modeling, they're almost 
not being used in a way. Do you see it as important for new designers to have the, the history, the understanding of, let's say, the, the old way of designing? Uh, yeah, because, you know, it's always important to, uh, when someone asks me, uh, what will be the ideal uh, learning path for a computational designer? My, my, main my main answer is, first of all, you need to understand the geometric paradigms. So starting with curves, point and curves, again, all the Bezier world, it's very important that, again, it's based upon the uh, curves equation. Golden ratio was massively used in the Renaissance as a way to find beauty. Because, you know, there is another concept behind, which is use, human beings, they are using mathematics, they use mathematics in the past to achieve a level of beauty connected in turn with an idea of perfection. So geometric paradigms, it's important to, under, to, to, to create a vocabulary, first of all, because if you are just into um, 3D modeling software, you don't understand what is behind, as you said, a kind of operation. For example, if you go in Rhino and you create a blend between two different surfaces, but you don't know anything about uh, surface continuity, they will be just buttons, you know? There is a huge difference between using a button and understanding the process behind that thing. Grasshopper, for example, to me was revolutionary at the beginning because it forced you to understand the logic behind an operation because Grasshopper doesn't have any button. It has just, you know, ingredients to create a recipe. So you need to, to connect things together. So I believe that it's important to know the history to understand uh, why and how something is created. But again, it's important to uh, understand that we are slowly going towards a new um, realm where the creation of models will be automatized some somehow. And again, coming back to the text to 3D, that is probably the next frontier. I guess that yesterday, Midjourney announced something like uh, we are very close to a text to 3D uh, oh, wow. tool. I think so. I, I read something on Twitter. We, we keep talking about these waves in history, yeah. right? So we had the Renaissance, which was all about symmetry proportion with the golden ratio, which was very important. And then the Baroque period, right? Yeah. Where they decided, okay, we had enough of that. Now let's throw it out the window, not completely, just enough to start messing with people's perceptions. Yeah. Uh, but they could only do that if the Renaissance had come, right? If the, the Baroque period would not be the Baroque without the Renaissance, because they wouldn't have a backbone to critique against. And it's, it's similar today in a way, isn't it? Where we have to have that sort of history behind. And like we were saying, with understanding, exposing the guts, of a building and understanding with all the refinement and materiality that the Richard Rogers and Norman Foster put into their buildings, which is very expensive, by the way, it's more expensive than doing it covered, and then taking that back and throwing it out the window. But in having that as an informing tool to design better. So it's, 
yeah, the history is quite important. Yeah, and this is a role. This is the role of university, um, mainly because the, we forget to probably we didn't talk about uh, the formal education. I believe also that the formal education in architecture schools and design schools should be reshaped somehow, because there is no the history of tools. So now, not in Italy, mm. and I guess not in Europe something or someone that teaches the evolution of tools and the evolution of geometric paradigms, which is super important. As you've mentioned, you know, that the transition between Renaissance and Baroque, it explains in a precise way the, 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 this kind of evolution from an idea of equilibrium and then explosion. But is an explosion possible just because there was a, I don't know, a vocabulary and a, and, and a, and a way to manage the complexity of, uh, of this kind of three-dimensional three and free-form shapes thanks to the previous uh, architecture period. So this is the role of schools to me. And they should prepare students to the current level of complexity. Something that happened, it happens to me that I was, uh, you know, exposed after university to a world that I did not understand at the beginning. And so it, it's very important to have this learning path in school and being ready after that to, to, be, to, to understand the complexity of the, of the current stage of design and architecture. Yeah, with, it has to do with gaps, though, in the education, right? Because there are some specific universities throughout the world that are known for technology and advancement yeah. of technology. But, but then there's all the other places which do not have access to people that can teach that. Uh, that's where I see online education as important because it's democratizing that kind of education. And it's giving more people access to tools that they should have access to, to think about and evolve yeah. their design methodologies. And something that is happening nowadays is that every each student uh, has to create his own path by connecting the dots and by sometimes by uh, selecting the right schools or doing a precise you know, connection of different uh, learning experiences and then uh, creating their own, uh, you know, background and, uh, and approach. It's, it's not easy, actually, because there is a huge offer and it's not easy to, to, to create, you know, the right framework. It, it's not, definitely not. But it also, so if university sets up the theoretical questions and gets people's feet just dipped just enough so they know what's going on out there with technology, then I believe it is the designer's responsibility or desire, if they have it, to go and start learning those tools in a way that could be used in, in their practice. Uh, because that's what happened to me. At DAA, you know, we, we got taught all these amazing tools. And then I worked in an office that's not known for computational design. And I had to learn Grasshopper, you know, working nights and weekends very long in order to be able to, to get to a point where I knew that that tool would actually help. I knew it in the beginning. I just didn't have the skills. So I had to, you know, work very hard to build it up. And um, so it's a, it's a fine balance, but the history is very important. Now, 
we're running long here. I don't want to keep you any longer. So do you have anything else you would like to mention or any events or, or anything? Yeah, maybe the conclusion of uh, also this, uh, uh, the, the, this point is that an, another thing that is happening is like the velocity of uh, uh, connected with the evolution of tools that we are going to experience with the AI. So keeping up with velocity will be the main skill of the future designers, students, and architects. So this is something really unprecedented, the velocity that we are experiencing. If you analyze, uh, this is just an example, of course, just the evolution of a tool like Midjourney from uh, um, June 22 and you know June 23, it's really unbelievable. So keeping up with velocity will be really, um, it will be part of the human evolution, I believe. How do you do that without burning out? If you have, you know, if you're a student or a professional? Uh, having a precise direction of what you want to achieve. Um, that's the only way. Otherwise, you will get lost again. We were mentioning the, 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 the coding maze. Uh, you need to have a precise idea of the goal and that will be the, the, the only way to, you know, for selecting the right tools, selecting the right path. Um, otherwise, it will be really, really, really complex. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Arturo. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. We discussed so many interesting aspects, especially about AI and design and appreciate your time spending with us no no my my pleasure and really thank you so much for the invitation it was uh, i really enjoyed the conversation with you dimitra me too thanks